you in Romans, and uh, we're passing from Romans 7 to 8. We've spent a long time in Romans 7 to 8, and I'm going to start and treat Romans 9 to 11 as a unit. I think we have to look at the whole section that Paul is making uh, an argument there. I've entitled this, The Greatest Mystery. Because Paul is going to refer to the mystery of Christ, but the mystery that he's talking about in Romans is not a mystery different than he talks about in Ephesians and Colossians. And this mystery, of course, is uh, that summed up and revealed to us in Christ. And it is then through Christ that we're going to understand the movement of world history and that we're going to apprehend the idea of how God has worked that history out. The biblical word here is predestination. <clears throat> I'm going to chapter 9, but I'm th- the idea is that in chapter 9 to 11, Paul is still using the same ideas that he's given us in 6 to 8. Uh, you know, in 6 to 8, he talked about in chapter 7, the I and the law of the mind, the law of the flesh. In chapter 9, he's going to talk about Israel of the flesh. So the movement of history, whether it's my personal interior history, the history of the I, or world history, it takes a similar form in Paul. In chapter 7, the law backs us into a corner until we cry out, Who will rescue me from this body of death? And the law as experienced by Israel has the same effect. In 7.7.25 he sees his flesh in rebellion, but he's also going to talk about an Israel of the flesh that's in rebellion. Israel's rebellion is against the gospel, as he'll describe it in 9.3.11.14. And he says it's based on an ignorant zeal. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Chapter 10, verse 2 to 3. This describes the predicament of the eye in Romans 7, which imagines that there is life in the law, or which imagines that the eye can work out the antagonism through a more intensified effort. So the movement of chapter 7 describes how the futility of intensified effort causes one to cry out to God, but Israel too, in their rebellion, is going to cry out and come to, in fact, God's saving plan. He's going to deal with Israel's unwilling and ignorant sin as he describes it in 10.3, so as to bring about salvation. So just as the history of the eye in Romans 7 is the result of delusion, of deception, Israel too has acted on the basis of a delusion. The alienation of the eye of Romans 7 between the law of the mind and the law of the flesh is the alienation accentuated within Israel in the rite of circumcision in which the flesh cannot be coordinated with the reality of the heart. So Paul in chapters 9 to 11 is going to work out on a corporate 
basis, including all people, Jews and Gentiles, what he has worked out on an individual basis in chapters 7 to 8. Here is the explanation of the Old Testament, but also the, the, uh, of history, the history of the world. Paul's lament at the opening of chapter 9 is in no way undone with his conclusion at the end of 11. And so we need to balance these two things out. 9, 1 to 5, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons. And the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. Who is over all God bless, uh, be blessed forever. What he's describing here is not a new event and Paul is not in any way inconsistent. Let's compare this passage then with 11.25 to 26. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. So the mystery that Paul mentions here in these verses is the same mystery that Paul's gospel always talks about. What is that mystery? Well, it's the mystery of the cross. It's the mystery of Christ. The mystery of the gospel, as Paul describes it in 9 to 11, it is the opposite of, of the mystery religions. And I think Paul has this in mind as he describes this mystery. It's the opposite of a Platonic mystery. These mysteries, like that of Romans 7, they create an absence. You know, what is the absence? Well, it's the absence of God. It's the fall of man. And then this absence, this is made an absolute. Paul says the idol is nothing. The idol is an absolute mystery. And so that human religion is founded on a mystery that cannot be dispelled. God is made absent by sin in Genesis. And human rebellion refuses God in Genesis and Babel and idolatry. And as Paul has portrayed it in chapter 7, so as to establish a righteousness of their own. But that's precisely the way he talks about the Jews. So the Greek and Hellenistic mystery religions had nothing to do with history and time, but in fact focused on the escape of both. What Paul is doing is describing the movement of history and how the incarnation and cross is the key to this history. Here's a quote uh, from Sophocles. Uh, it says that he shares, he receives a share in the destiny of the God. He becomes 
is made like him and can enter without terrible harm the sphere of divine rule. Blessed is he, this is the quote, blessed is he who sees this and then goes under the earth. He knows the end of life, but he also knows the beginning by God. Again, uh, from Sophocles, thrice blessed are those who after seeing these rites descend into Hades. To them alone is life given below. All others only experience evil there. What are they describing? What's you know in the mystery religions? That in some way we can be carried away to heaven or we can be uh, go to the depths of Hades and in some way we will find the truth there. In contrast, the mystery revealed in Christ is in and through the incarnation. And this is, I think, Paul's directly addressing the mystery religions, the Gnostic tendencies. Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Chapter 10, verse 5 to 9. I think the mystery religions are just describing the tendency of people to find truth, righteousness on their own, to ascend to heaven, to descend to Hades. And the truth is to be found in Christ. As Christians, we do not escape history, time, and reality to ascend to the heavens or the place of the dead. But rather, God has come to us in Christ. The other thing is that the mystery religions made an absolute division between those inside and outside. And those who have been initiated into the mysteries, they have this secret knowledge. And they are completely then separate. They do not share this. And of course, this is Paul's argument throughout Romans, Galatians. There is no distinction This is the mistake of the Jews. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The mystery has been disclosed in Christ. The mysteries, especially in Plato and philosophical mysteries, describe a toilsome ascent from Uh, you know, the changing world of time and history to uh, arrive at the unchanging reality of the one. In fact, in this, Plato sounds very Buddhist. Uh, The Buddhist and Hindu ascetic continually are striving to attain to the unity, uh, to a full vision. Paul says, I testify about them. And he's talking about the Jews. But again, I think the tendency of the Jews is the tendency of humankind. And this is what has been revealed in the law. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Uh, 
the mystery religions, you know, describe, and this is especially true if you if you've studied Buddhism, uh, that they will talk about things in kind of an incongruity. They express the facts, the secrets of the divine, but in fact, the, the things that they are declaring are inarticulate. Uh, they're focused on an experience, not a word. You know, you've heard the the Buddhist cones. How do you drink tea from an empty cup? Let's think about that for ten minutes. You know, or how? What is the the sound of one hand clapping? Uh, I can't hear it. Um, the idea is. Uh, in, in one of Buddha's talks, you know, he takes a flower and he's rolling the flower in his hand and he's smiling. And the disciples come to him and they say, oh, master, you know, what is the key to enlightenment? And he, he just keeps rolling the flower in his hands and smiling. And they keep asking and guessing questions. And finally, one of the disciples, he smiles too. And Buddha says, ah, oh, you've got it. That is, you cannot articulate this secret um, mystical speech is inexact, it's symbolic, it discloses a knowledge that is in some way ineffable. And that's the very meaning of the mysterious nature, the, the very word of mysterio. It mediates knowledge to us uh, that cannot be articulated. So there are the initiates into the secret knowledge, and this is the, the great, uh, you know, Gnostic heresy of the second century. Paul says there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. No mystery there, is there? The mystery has been dispelled in Christ. How will they call on him they have not believed? How will they believe if they have not heard? That is the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of Paul's gospel dispels the mystery. Whoever you know, uh, has believed our report, whoever has faith. So the New Testament and what Paul is doing when he talks about the mystery is in continuity with what Jesus did. You know, the one place that Jesus talks about the mystery is in his parables. Uh, he mentions, you know, in the parable of the sower in Mark 4, 11 to 12. He was saying to them, you have, uh, to you has been given the mystery. What is the mystery that has been given to the disciples, that has been passed on through the apostles, that has not been given to the Jews. That's precisely what Paul is talking about. It's the Jesus says, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables. So that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Jesus talks about a hardening of the heart. And Paul talks about this hardening of Israel. I believe they're talking about the same thing. The kingdom of God inaugurated by Christ contains the mystery of salvation. And inasmuch as we miss that salvation is through the kingdom of the church, that it's established by Christ, 
We will search for the mystery above and below, but in fact the mystery is dispelled right here before us. The rule of Jesus in his preaching, in, you know, in, in talking about the parables, is to withhold knowledge so as to complete their hardening. Paul is now describing, I believe, he gives us the insight into what Jesus is saying. This hardening is not the final destiny of these people, but as part of the purpose of God that all people might be bought in. We're about to touch upon some of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. But I think this is the understanding. What then? What Israel is seeking, Paul says, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, I'm reading from Romans 11, 7-11, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day and David says let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever I say they did not stumble so as to fall did they may it never be Paul says, that is, is Israel condemned forever because of this hardening? Meganoita, God forbid. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Here is Paul's picture of the movement of world history. That the Jews have been chosen for a universal message that is inclusive of the Gentiles. The mystery of Christ, which Paul describes, he describes it throughout his epistles as well as here in Romans, is that the division between Jews and Gentiles, which for Paul, you understand, that's the prototype of all divisions. That's, you know, every tribal, ethnic, even, uh, you know, gender division is captured in that. And even the division within people that Paul has talking about. In, you know, within ourselves, within the individual, as in Romans 7. All of that is undone in Christ. There is the dispelling of the mystery. There is this great mystery. There is this great division. There is this great antagonism. And Christ then has brought about unity. He has brought about the agape fellowship in Christ. He says in uh, Colossians 2, 2-3, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What is the mystery dispelled in Christ? Well, we have unity, we have agape love, we have fellowship. He describes it as Jew-Gentile unity in Colossians 1, 27 to 28. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. 
There is this great antagonism division represented by Jew-Gentile antagonism. It's undone in Christ. Now this mystery dispelled is inevitably connected. It's in Romans 9 to 11 and in these other passages as well. It's inevitably connected to predestination. I'm about to explain, and this is the difficult part of Romans 9 to 11. We can misconstrue the meaning of predestination, but Paul is very clear. Predestination is specific to Christ. Christ is the one through whom God has predestined all things. We do, not, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak of God's wisdom in a mystery. This is from 1 Corinthians 2, 6-10. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. What is the predestination? Well, Paul is talking about Christ and him crucified. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So what is predestination? Well, it's the predestination that God has predestined all things in in and through Christ. Um, This is in Romans 9.22. Here is this hard passage, but I've just given you the key to it. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath? prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for for glory. Even us whom he called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. The way that this is often misread is, oh, here is Calvinistic, you know, double predestination. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about how in and through his wrath and mercy, all people then are saved. I'm following N.T. Wright here. He says, this was never an abstract doctrine of predestination, attempting to plumb the mysteries of why some people, in general, without reference to Israel, hear and believe the gospel and others do not. Paul never encourages speculation of that sort. So what is he doing? He's saying very specifically that the fact of Israel's election, starting with the call of Abraham, had always been there to deal with the sin of the world. That is, that the Jews saw Abraham as the resolution to the problem of sin and alienation. Israel's election had always involved Israel being narrowed down, not just to Isaac and then to Jacob, but to a remnant, a seed, a singular seed, Paul says. And that this remnant itself would be narrowed down to a single point, to the Messiah himself, who would himself be cast away 
who would himself be the object of wrath, so that the world might be redeemed. So, Christ is true Israel, even in being cast away, in receiving, you know, Paul talks about the metaphor of potter and clay, to describe his dealings specifically with Israel. Why, you know, what is it, the shape that God has given to Israel? He's not talking about all humanity here. Israel cannot tell God, you are unfair in molding us in a certain way. You know, I've heard it, the Jewish rabbis say, well, God, you know, we're the chosen people and the prayer is God. Next time, please choose someone else. <laughs> uh, God has chosen Israel and he is the master potter and can mold pottery in any way he chooses. Chooses. And this is what is meant by election. It is not that election simply involves a selection of some, you know, for heaven and some for hell, some loved and some hated. That's not the end of the story. Paul says, shall Israel be rejected forever? He says, God forbid. It is that the elect themselves are elect in order to be the place and the means by which God's redemptive purposes are being worked out. Israel comes down to the representative, which is the Messiah. And in the Messiah, the problem of sin is uh, resolved. So Paul is reinterpreting the story of Israel. God's act of hardening, like his act of electing, was to demonstrate his saving purposes. Paul writes, in 9.22, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known has endured with much patience vessels of wrath in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So Paul, by writing, what if, is introducing a new interpretation. What if God wanted to demonstrate his judgment, his wrath, and his power by showing patience towards the vessels of wrath Revealing the riches of his mercy, which includes the Gentiles. Well, the answer is, this is exactly what has happened in the Messiah. Paul quotes from the prophet Hosea to answer his own question. Those who were not my people, this is in Romans 9.25, I will call my people and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. So the Israel upon a whom a partial hardening has come, in Romans 11.25, refers to the Jews. Whereas all Israel that will be saved is the church. That all come together. Here is true Israel. Here is the fulfillment. So what becomes apparent in Romans 9-11 to is that there is a kind of paradox here because the way in which Israel's story has been God's instrument in the salvation of the world has precisely been the way in which they've been cast away that we see in the Messiah. So this negative press predestination that is talked about, you know, the, the object of God's wrath, is simultaneously the Messiah's people. And the Messiah's people according to the flesh, as we might have deduce from the opening summary in 9, 4 to 5 are to find their fulfillment 
in the Messiah, the true people, the true people of, of promise. So Israel's story uh, was always designed to come to its climax in the arrival and the accomplishment of the Messiah. But that, that accomplishment, as Paul had come to see, involved the Messiah, as he says, being cast away for the sake of the world. So Israel recapitulates. You know, this is the language of Irenaeus. The rejection and death of the Messiah. The two Adams of chapter 5. You know, that's Paul in chapter 5 has already done a world history. Here's the first Adam, here's the second Adam. And now with Israel, he's telling the same world history again. Now it's the corporate. Now we understand how one is representative of one half of the world and the other is representative of the other half of the world. All human history is summed up, I believe, here in Romans 9 to 11. Salvation has come to the Gentiles through Israel's stumble in which Israel recapitulates the sin of Adam in 520. The reconciliation of the world has come about through Israel's casting away. So at the heart of this, maybe one of Paul's strangest passages, certainly most challenging chapters, we find exactly this, this understanding, that the Creator God, having entered into a covenant with Abraham's family, that he would bless the world through that family, has been faithful to the promise. Even though it has been in a kind of, as N.T. Wright puts it, an upside-down and inside-out way now unveiled in the Messiah. As he says, Paul says in 9.33, Israel has stumbled over the stumbling stone, which had been, had been, had been placed in its path by God. So the failure and success and the purpose of that failure and success is found in the Messiah. Who is true Israel? The implicit narrative is the story of the creator and the creation of the covenant with Abraham as the means of restoring creation. And so the paradoxical failure is also the paradoxical success of his covenant purposes. Israel was ignorant. Paul says, of the righteousness of God. Uh, It did not understand or recognize what God was doing with its history. That mystery is now dispelled. Here is the explanation, Paul says. Uh, The divine covenant purposes are those that have been put into operation uh, through Christ in the story of Israel. So it's not that choosing, uh, you know, some of the wilderness generation and not others or making Israel in fact the vessel of his wrath that even Pharaoh had been made you know the the uh, a vessel not in the sense of a Calvinistic double predestination but in the sense that through God's purposes molding this clay God's universal salvation for Jew and Gentile is worked out this is where the theme if, uh, of chapter 7, 1 to 8, 11, is, I think, an interpretive key for 9 to 11. Paul is speaking about of the way in which Israel's vocation to be the people of God includes being vessels of wrath, 
uh, we can understand, we can go back to chapter 7. You know, think here, there is the law of the mind and the law of the flesh. It's not that one half of the self is predestined for heaven and the other half is predestined for hell. Uh, rather, the inherent antagonism within human beings that is exposed through the law resolves, well, it, it exposes it. The law does not resolve the antagonism, but it exposes that antagonism for the individual and also for Israel. And Christ then, through the cross, resolves that antagonism. So Paul can sum this up in chapter 11. By their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Thank Jesus. You know, why was Jesus talking about a partial hardening? Their trespass means riches for the world, Paul says in 11.12. And their failure, riches for the Gentiles. Their casting away, Paul says in 11.15, means the reconciliation of the world. In 11.30 he says, you have received mercy because of their unbelief. In 11.31, they have disbelieved on account of your mercy. In 11, uh, 11.32 he repeatedly emphasizes the idea of Israel's stumbling, Israel's rejection as the means of the Gentiles being brought in. N.T. Wright does a nice summary of this. We can go through then. Step one, what is the purpose of Israel? Paul always envisioned that it would be the means of rescuing the whole world. The covenant with Abraham. And this vocation would be distorted by the Jews. They would imagine that being elect meant they were privileged over against the rest of the world. That's a misunderstanding of their election. And in Christ, this distortion has shown up. And that's what Paul is saying here. The, the divine intention was always to deal with the evil, evil of the world. Sin, as it's personified in chapter 7. He's going to heap it up into one place and pass judgment, execute sentence upon it. And the cross, at the cross, evil is exposed for the deception that it is. Israel has been deceived. Adam has been deceived. We've all been deceived. And that is exposed. Think here of, you know, that deception has worked itself out in the mystery religions, in the human uh, pursuit of salvation. And God's purpose, his predestined purpose from before the foundation of the world was always intended to be through the Messiah himself. Um, the necessary precondition for this judging of sin in the person of the Messiah would be that Israel, the people of the Messiah, should itself become the place where sin was gathered together in order that this burden might be passed on to the Messiah alone. So, we all have this sin problem, but in and through Israel... That the elect, that wrath of God has been narrowed down to one person. That Israel was called to be the vessels of wrath, the place where the wrath of the creator against the wickedness of the whole creation would be gathered together into one place. But this was never intended to be a permanent condition. 
Wright compares it to a bomb disposal squad. You know, you uh, you take the, the bomb and you uh, take the detonation device off of it. But if Israel clings to its status of privilege, that would be like uh, members of a bomb squad who are so proud of their mission that they become reluctant to leave the bomb behind. There can therefore be no covenant future for those Israelites, Paul says, who refuse to abandon their own ethnic status. The status, their notion of a privileged uh, covenant membership. Christ, Paul says in 10.3, is the end of that road. Those who see in Christ uh, the understanding of what God is doing in Israel's history and who grasp this in faith, then Israel can regain, those Israelites can regain their full status. So Israel is the Messiah's of people, Paul says in 9.5, according to the flesh. It has acted on a grand scale. And what that means is that it has become the place where sin has brought, been drawn together in order to be dealt with. So this is, I think, the explanation of Israel's being cast away, Christ's uh, being cast away. So the conclusion. What is the mystery? The mystery is that of being made one in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 3 to 7, uh, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote in this in brief, by referring to this when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other gener- generations was not made known to the sons of man, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, Paul says, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery then is the mystery of being made one in Christ. The mystery is made known, Paul says, specifically through the church. The manifold wisdom of God made known through the church to the rulers and authorities. Uh, This was in accordance, and again he brings up predestination. This was in accordance to his eternal purposes. Ephesians 3, 9-12. So this joining of Jews and Gentiles in one body under the head Christ is a cosmic eschatological event. And there takes place in it already the mystery of the comprehending of the whole world in Christ, in whom the totality receives its head and sum. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Let's sing.